Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word, and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. We're going to be in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 this morning. John chapter 15 and verse 1. And as we've already noted this morning, graduation time is upon us. Um, we have some today that are have already graduated from high school or going to be graduating from high school this week. Um, myself, I graduated from Southwestern Seminary uh, last weekend. So it's just part of that time. And part of the graduation ceremony is you'll have someone get up to give a keynote address. And in my case, it was Dr. Adam Greenway, president of Southwestern Seminary, who stood up and gave a message from Romans chapter 12 that spoke about, he challenged us to live a Romans 12 transformed life in a Romans 1 fallen world. But in our passage of study this morning, Jesus is giving a kind of commencement address to his disciples, to those who walked with him. So let me give you some context first. The context is we're in the upper room discourse. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has, they have partaken of the Lord's Supper together. And during the Lord's Supper, Judas Iscariot has left from their midst to go out and would later betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And then chapter 14 ended with Jesus giving his remaining disciples, those who were faithful, this word in chapter 14 that, that Joan just spoke about, or sang about, that he's gone to prepare a place for us, and that if we follow him, we will be there. So Joan sang about the life to come, but our focus in our passage this morning is the here and now. So as they were traveling, they, chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says, uh, get up and let us go. Well, where are they going? They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Judas would betray Jesus, the place where Jesus would be arrested. But as they're walking through this vineyard, this garden, Jesus uses the surroundings to give them an illustrative parable in chapter 15. But before we jump into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity we have to come together, to join and to sing praises to your name, to recognize those who have accomplished things in their lives. But Lord, the greatest accomplishment is not our own, as we're going to see in this passage, but it's the accomplishment that you did for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning I pray that as we read and study this passage this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would pierce us, that you would penetrate us, that you would reveal our sinfulness to us and balm it with the promises of your word. Lord, have your way with this time of preaching. We pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. 
Amen. Join me in John 15 and verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now let's pause there. Because I want us to see first that we are to abide in your position in Christ. So Jesus uses the example here. He says, I am the vine. As they're walking out, he turns and he sees these vines producing fruit. And the Old Testament frequently used the image of the vine or the vineyard as a symbol for Israel. But most of the time when it's used, it's used in a negative connotation. In fact, if you look at Isaiah 5, you don't have to turn there, but it contains the song of the vineyard, in which God has given the vineyard everything that it needs to succeed. And the vineyard there is Israel. And it says this, He dug it all around, tilled the soil, he removed its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. See, Israel was a fake vine because it did not produce good fruit. But here in John 15, Jesus opens with this claim, I am the true vine. In the previous chapter, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples how he and the Father were one. They were united. Jesus was functionally, he is functionally subordinate to the Father to accomplish the Father's purpose. He does all the Father asks of him so that the Father may be glorified. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is subordinate in essence. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are one in nature yet different in role. And Jesus' role was to embody the righteousness of God in fallen humanity. He was the perfect man. And shortly after this address, in fact, the next day, Jesus would take his righteousness and imbue it upon those who trust in his name when he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus, as the true vine, he can produce only good fruit. And he says that God, the Father, his Father, my Father, is the vine dresser, or your version may say the gardener, the master gardener. He examines every branch that is attached to the vine. And the task of the master gardener in a vineyard is to look and examine all of the vines to see which ones are producing fruit, which ones are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're growing, they're producing fruit, and to look at them and to see which ones are unproductive, which ones that are productive, and to deal with each one according to what needs to be done to them. Well, we're going to look at what happens to the unproductive branch more when we get to verse number 6. But right now, let's take a moment to look at what happens with the productive branch. Because, now, I'm not a master gardener. I'm not a gardener at all, in fact. But here's how I understand the process of pruning. There's a science to it, but there's also an art to it. So pruning requires that you be knowledgeable, that you have a discerning eye, 
And it requires the, the gardener to be able to look and see this plant should look like this, but here's what it currently looks like. And so he'll look at the plant and see where it needs to be trimmed, where it needs to be hedged, and to shape it according to the way it should. And it sounds awful because these, the, the pruner, the, the gardener, will go and cut off pieces that are strategically cut off. It's, uh, it's damaging, it causes stress to the plant, but pruning is necessary to improve the health and the productivity of the plant. So pruning usually involves first the removal of that which is dead, that which is diseased, that which is damaged in the plant. But it also involves removing branches that are rubbing against one another, causing problems, and sometimes it's simply the removal of old wood or old life in the plant. Old wood is considered to be any wood that is older than the current season's new growth. And the older wood is often damaged or it's just unproductive. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? Well, remember the context we're talking about here is the plants are healthy. And in this context, he's speaking to the disciples who are remaining, the faithful ones. They are producing fruit. They're healthy, but still sometimes God will prune you. And that can be painful, it can be stressful, it can be unpleasant, but it's ultimately for your good. Sometimes it may mean getting rid of good things to make room for better things. What is good is not always godly. It's not always what God has planned for you. And so sometimes he's going to come and he's going to prune some good things out of your life to make room for things that are better. Sometimes he does this in a ministry or he does this in a church. And he prunes away some things that are old, that have served their purpose, that have caused growth, but they are no longer growing. And he wants to make room for something that is better. And it's, it's painful. We love our things that we've had that worked. We love our traditions, and that's okay. But sometimes, although it hurts to let something go that you're used to, it's necessary to make room for growth for something new. But notice what happens in verse 3, what Jesus says. He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Once again, he's speaking to the faithful apostles, the 11 that remain. Judas has left. These had been with Jesus. They had been discipled by Jesus. They had been sent out to do the work of ministry and to come back and to report to Jesus what they had done. And he helped them and, and grew them. And then later in the same chapter, he tells them, I now call you my friends, for you are no longer my slaves. We are, there's an equality there. He says, in fact, earlier in verse chapter 14, you will do things that are greater works than what I have done. This is one of life's changes. You, you grow, you learn, you mature, you graduate, and then your teacher is no longer over you. There, <coughs> see Miss Mason in here. I would never have imagined calling Miss Mason by Betsy, but I do, because no, she's no longer my teacher, but she's a friend. At seminary, I had a professor of Old Testament named Dr. Dodd, 
He's now my boss. I call him Adam. That's the way it goes. You graduate and now you're equal with those because you have matured. Well, I'm not saying that the apostles outgrew Jesus. Okay, don't take that from this example. I'm not saying that they became more holy or as holy or righteous as he. In fact, in this very same night, Peter would fail. He would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. But in the context of this passage, what it's saying is Jesus knew that they did not fully understand his message and his salvation that he brought, but they would when that time came. He says, you're ready. I have prepared you. You're good to go. But there's some pruning that needs to take place. Well, if you're here today and you understand that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who took on the nature of man and dwelt among us and lived a sinless life, but died as a substitutionary death for sinful humanity on the cross, and yet rose again on the third day, Healthy vines. Healthy branches. So here's the application for these first few verses. Abide in your position in Jesus. And allow God to do the transforming work. Look with me at the next couple of verses. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the second point this morning is abide and bear fruit. Abide and bear fruit. One of the basic themes in the Apostle John's writings is this first word that we find in verse 4. It's the Greek word minnow, or it's derived from the Greek word minnow, and it means to remain in, to abide, to dwell in. Pastor and author Tony Evans illustrates this idea by making tea. You, when you make tea with tea bags, you, you heat the water, you, know, you get your pot, you put it on the stove, or you put it in the microwave, or whatever, and you get the water hot. You heat the water. And you take the tea bag and you put it in the water. Now there's two options there. You can either put it in the water and let it sit and steep, which is what you're supposed to do, or if you're like me, you take it by the little tag and dip it over and over and over <laughs> until it gets all the tea out. And here's the thing, when you're dipping over and over and over, it makes it a lot of work to get your tea. But the reason I do that is because I want to take my hot tea and pour it into the pitcher full of sugar and let that sugar melt into the tea and then I'll add some ice and water to, to make it ready to, to drink immediately because I'm impatient and I want it now. But I've been told it's much better. It actually tastes better if you just let it sit and steep as it should. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, minnow. It's an imperative. Abide. Rest in me. Abide in me just as the Father abides in me, he says in chapter 14 and verse 10, and just as the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit will abide in you in verse 17 and 14. 
But the rest of this phrase is, is difficult to translate. There's some debate over what exactly it means in the original Greek. Um, but I think it's most likely a promise of Jesus abiding presence in believers. This version, my version here says, abide in me and I in you. As if it's still a command. But I think it would be better to say, abide in me as I abide in you. There's a mutual indwelling that's more than just simple we obey Jesus. There's more to it than simple obedience. You must soak. You must absorb Jesus' teaching. You must absorb Jesus' character into your own. One of my classes uh, this semester was on uh, disciple-making. And one of the roles was to grow in the character and in the competencies of Jesus. That's what it means to become a disciple. And that's the context of this passage, is becoming a disciple. You're a disciple. You must soak Jesus' teaching. You must soak Jesus' character into your own, just as that when the water with the tea bag sitting in it, the water's flowing in and out of the tea bag, and it makes the water transform into tea. Now, there's, there's more to it than this, because there's this idea of bearing fruit. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion on what exactly it means to bear fruit. I've heard this passage used to talk about, well, you need to be out making more converts, making more <laughs> followers of Jesus. But I don't think that's exactly the context here. The context suggests the fruit is not evangelism, but that the, because successful evangelism, in my understanding, isn't reliant on us to produce the works. See, successful evangelism isn't me coming back and saying, listen, I went out and I won ten people to the Lord today. Because I don't have that ability. I can go and share the gospel. That's successful evangelism. Amen. To go out and share the good news, that's what we're called to do. But Scripture makes it clear that God is the one who does the saving. Right. God is the one who is effective for the harvest. Amen. He's the Lord of the harvest. We are just workers in the field. Amen. So successful evangelism is sharing the gospel. We're not in charge of the harvest. So I don't think that's what this passage is about. It's about discipleship. God is concerned that the believer bears fruit. His primary purpose in creation was to bear fruit. If you look at Genesis 1, look at how many times it says, go and multiply. He says he created the fruit of the field, the plants in the field, and he told them to go and to bear fruit, to multiply. He created the animals and the beasts of the field, and he told them to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. And then he told humanity, go forth and multiply and subdue the earth. He was concerned about multiplication, bearing fruit in creation. I know that sounds like what I just said this isn't. But listen to this. His primary purpose in redemption is that we bear fruit. We see this not only in this passage and later in the same chapter he talks about it again. But in Ephesians chapter 2, which is often set up as a contrast between James and his ideas of works. But Ephesians chapter 2, Paul himself writes this. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one would boast. Amen. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared ahead of us for us to do. Amen. God created us. He redeemed us to bear fruit. And what is this fruit? This is the question. What is this fruit? Well, Galatians 5, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of a Christ-like nature, is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit that God wants us to have, is Christ-likeness, developing in the character and the competencies of Jesus. But we cannot bear this fruit on our own. Jesus reminds us of our position. The branch cannot bear fruit if it's not attached to the vine. That's right. I've got here, I wouldn't say it's a branch, maybe a twig. <laughs> but it came off of an oak tree at my parents' house. Last night I said, Brady, I need a, a fruit-bearing branch. And he brought me an oak branch. And I said, well, I guess it does bear acorns, right? So... Here's my question. Can this produce an acorn? No. Is there any way for it to produce an acorn? No. Maybe we could glue some acorns on it. Maybe take some ornament hangers from Christmas and hang some on there. But then it would just be false. It's not really actually bearing. What can this do on its own? Nothing. Nothing. What happens to it? It dies. Withers. You burn it. But here's what we try to do. Try to be like this branch. Cut ourselves off from Christ. We don't abide in Him. And we try to add these works on and say, look at how good we are. Look at my righteousness. Jesus says, without abiding in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's reminding the disciples that there's an issue of identity here. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. You remember, the humans were tempted by the desire to be like God. The branches, he says, you must not confuse yourself with the vine. In verse 5, he says this in an emphatic sense. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you don't abide in me, You've got nothing. You've got no fruit. You've got no life. And there's this delicious irony here. See, the, the fruitfulness that we want to see as being Jesus' disciples is not accomplished by our work, but it's accomplished by our rest. It's by abiding in Jesus that we bear fruit. Even in our sanctification, we have to trust that Jesus has it under control. That the Spirit of God will work. We have to have confidence in the work of the Lord in our lives. So what's going to happen to this branch when it's removed from the tree? Look with me at the next verses. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 
So we are to abide, and by doing so, we glorify the Father. But here we return to the idea that I, I skimmed over in verse 2. What happens to the, to the branches not produce fruit? It gets cut off. It gets taken away. And some have taken this to mean that one can lose their salvation. But the problem is, this is not the case. It goes against the rest of Scripture. It goes against the compendium of Scripture. But it refers to those who have attached themselves to Jesus in some way, but were not with him. And as we're reading this in the context, we must remember the, the example that we have here that's built in. Judas Iscariot was part of them. He was chosen as one of the 12 apostles. And he followed Jesus. He served with Jesus. He went out and ministered in Jesus' name. And then the Lord's Supper, he departed from them. And the, the rest of the apostles don't know this yet, but Jesus does. Judas has left. They think he's gone to go get something for the meal. He's still not back, and they're going out to the garden. They don't know what's happening. Jesus does, and he's giving this lesson, and it's about to fully sink in when, G when Judas comes back and betrays Jesus with a kiss. Judas Iscariot was with Jesus. He claimed to be a follower of Jesus, but he went out and was not a part of them. He was an imposter, a fake follower. And I think this is the greatest deception that we have in the American South. If we live in an area where there are churches on nearly every corner. There's churches everywhere. And if you go up to the common person on the street and you say, are you a Christian? What are they going to say? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm a Christian. There are many who profess that they are Christians, that they are followers of Jesus. Literally, Christians means little Christ. They claim, I'm a little Christ. But if you examine their lives, you don't see any fruit. You don't see the fruit of the Spirit coming out of them. You don't see them abiding in Jesus. They claim to follow Jesus, but they spend absolutely no time with Him. And spending time in church with God's people is either sporadic, out of social obligation, out of family tradition, or most commonly, non-existent. In another parable in the book of Matthew, Jesus spoke of sheep and goats. They'll come at the end of days, and he's going to separate out the sheep from the goats. And the goats will go to eternal destruction. Another place he speaks of sowing wheat, and someone went and sowed tares in the field. And as it grows up, they allow them to grow together. And at the end of days, they cut them both down, and they separate the wheat from the tares, and the tares are cast into the, the flame. You know, the interesting thing about a, a vine, the, the branch from a grapevine or something like that, you know, if you cut a branch off of a, a regular tree, you can sand it down, you can shave it, you can use it for something. You can create with it. But with these vines, the branches of the vine. When it's no longer attached, there's nothing you can do with it. It dries up. It's good for nothing. You know, we, we don't really have grapevines around here, but we have blackberry bushes. So think of maybe a blackberry bush. It's called thorny and nasty anyways. 
if it's producing fruit, I'm okay with it, as long as I can get the blackberries and make some blackberry cobbler. But if that vine is no longer producing blackberries, what good is it? Let's cut it off. Throw it in the fire. Well, this is the same thing. If you're claiming that you are a follower of Jesus, but you're not abiding in Jesus, you're not surrendered to Jesus, then you're exactly like this. You are a dead vine, not attached to the true vine. And you will be cut off and cast into the eternal fires of hell. But the focus of this passage isn't on those who left. focus is on those who remain, those who abide in Christ. Remember, he's speaking to the eleven faithful ones. In verse 7, he links this abiding to prayer. The more you abide in Christ, the more you become like Christ, and the more your prayer life becomes like Christ's prayer life. And if you want to know the secret to effective prayer, get closer to Jesus. You begin praying the way God would have you pray. That's right. It ceases from being self-centered, selfish, self-focused to I want God's will Amen. to be accomplished. I want God's will to be done in my life. I want God's will to be done in our church. I want God's will to be done in our world. And you begin praying that way. And guess what? If you're praying God's will be done, your prayers are going to be answered. God's will will be done. Amen. So abide with Jesus. Pray like Jesus. And then you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done. The glory of God, though, verse number 8. Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so proved to be my disciples. This is a common theme in John's gospel. God glorifies himself. He is glorified here in those who are disciples who are bearing fruit. And the primary purpose of a disciple of Christ is to glorify Jesus. And Jesus glorifies the Father. And so this bearing of fruit, this growing in Christ's likeness, not only glorifies not only indicates that they are a true follower of Jesus, but it glorifies God. And that is our purpose. Yeah. That is why we were put on this earth, is to bring glory to God. That's right. So real quickly, let's look at the results of abiding. And we see these in the rest of the chapter. And I'm not going to spend uh, uh, preach the, all of those, or we'd be here for the rest of the afternoon. But let me give you four results that we see from the passages following. In verses 9 through 11, we find that you will find joy... If you're abiding in Christ, you will find joy in loving God and being loved by Him. If you look forward to verses 12 through 17, you'll find joy in sacrificial love for the brethren, for one another. Jesus says, it is by your love that people will know that you're my followers. Verses 18 through 25, you'll find joy in persevering through persecution. Jesus says, the world hated me. Don't be surprised when the world hates you, but you'll find joy in it. And then 26 and 27, you'll find joy in sharing the good news, the gospel, with other people. You'll find joy in evangelism and telling people what God's doing in your life. Amen. So here's my question. Are you abiding? Are you abiding? The first question of this is, are you in Christ? Are you, you can't abide in Christ if you're not connected to Christ. Before you can bear fruit, 
You must, if you, it does no good to have a tea bag and the cup separated, but it, are you that tea bag in the cup? Now, maybe you're here today, and before this message, you would have said, yes, I'm a Christian. Maybe it's because you're an American, and that's what we are. Maybe it's because you're an Oklahoman, and there's churches on every corner. Maybe it's because you were raised in church. You were there every time the doors were open. Maybe you're baptized once upon a time. Or even you walked an aisle once upon a time, but since then you haven't been abiding in Christ. Are you truly in Jesus? Amen. Have you confessed Him as your Lord and as the Savior of your life? Are you abiding in Him, following Him, following His teachings, and developing in His character? Maybe you're here today and you need to rest in your salvation. Because you say, well, I accepted Jesus, but now it's my job. He saved me. I have to do all these good works to live up to what Jesus expects of me. Friends, that's not what the Scripture says. You can never be good enough. That's right. That's right. Jesus said only God is good, and He would know because He was God. But the good news is he died so that we could live. Amen. And his spirit indwells those who confess his name. So you must abide in Jesus. Let his word and his spirit abide in you and let the spirit do his work. Amen. Maybe you acknowledge that you need Jesus for salvation. But you're not continuing in growth in Christ-likeness. Are you connected to the vine? Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of His Word.